0: Welcome to the podcast at DC. My name is David Yoakum. I'm the director of the lab at DC. Today, we're going to be talking about using evidence to fight poverty in America. And it's my pleasure to have a true expert on this with me today, Professor Jim Sullivan from the University of Notre Dame. Where are the Reverend Thomas J. McDonough, C.S.C. Associate Professor of Economics. You're also the director of the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities. And more broadly, you have a very rich history of thinking about writing about, advising policymakers about all issues of anti-poverty programs, and have done work on studying consumption, saving bar and behavior of poor po- households, as well as poverty and inequality measurement itself. And so, Professor Sullivan, it's a real pleasure to have you here. Welcome. Thanks. Good to be here. Well, I think where I'd like to start, given our topic, is actually trying to give a bit of a picture of what poverty in America looks like. What do we know about it, and how do we actually have those types of measurements. Mm-hmm.
1: So, uh, you know, despite being the richest country in the world, uh, we still have extensive poverty. You know, 41 million Americans, according to the official definition, uh, are living in poverty and children are disproportionately represented in that group. Uh, about 18% of children are, are living in poverty. And um, <clears throat> You know that has motivated a lot of policy around. You know what do we do about that? So um, both at the local level and at the federal level, there are policies to try and improve outcomes for for those uh, in need. And um, you know if you look at just the human service sector, that uh, prov- nonprofit human service sector across the country, they're investing two billion dollars a year in pro- all sorts of programs, whether it's. Uh, job training program, uh, homeless shelter, mm-hmm. or uh, food pantry in um, trying to address this issue. And the federal government spends upwards of $800 billion a year uh, addressing these issues. And yeah. so so we, we're, poverty is a vexing, persistent issue in this country, and we allocate a lot of resources to try to address it. And I want to talk
0: a lot about, actually, mm-hmm. how we're spending that money, what mm-hmm. we know about it. But to slow down a little bit further on just poverty itself, mm-hmm. what is it, what what kind of income level should we be thinking about here? What does it mean? Like, how does it get um, operationalized to be in poverty? Mm -hmm. How much money are we talking about?
1: Yeah, so uh, the poverty uh, definition, the official definition, um, has an income cutoff, and if your income falls below that cutoff, you're defined as poor, and that cutoff varies by family size. So the larger your family, um, the higher the cutoff. Um, You know, so think about a family of four having income, Below twenty-four thousand dollars would be considered uh, poor, and uh, if your income exceeds that, then, then then you're not poor. And that definition was um, set in 1965. When the Social Security Administration uh, what uh, charged Molly Orshansky with coming up with a definition of poverty because they were launching the war on poverty, and they wanted to say, well, if we're going to do a war on poverty, we have to be able to measure what, you know, whether or not we're being successful at it. And we really haven't changed the definition of poverty since that time. We've just adjusted it uh, over time to account for inflation. For inflation. Mm-hmm.
0: And so the figure is around 41 million Americans mm-hmm. in poverty, one out of five children in poverty, kind of breathtaking figures. How do we actually know those numbers? Is this from... Different surveys, where they come
1: from? Yeah, so it actually comes from a annual survey that the census and BLS put out uh, where they um, ask households a series of questions about their income from all different sources. And so one of the interesting um, features of poverty measurement is, and it really is grounded in when it was established in the 1960s, um, is it only counts cash income. And so um, it counts all of your earnings, it counts, um, you know, if you get transfers like unemployment insurance and, and welfare dollars that are that come in the form of cash, um, then they're counted. It doesn't count food stamps uh, or the SNAP program. It doesn't count uh, tax credits, which ends up being really important because uh, and it doesn't count um, health insurance. And these things are important because if you look at what programs the government has expanded and think. Programs that grew out of the war on poverty—they're all programs. The the most the programs that expanded the most are programs that are not counted in our official poverty measure: um, tax credits for the right. Income Tax Credit, um, health insurance for Medicaid, the food stamp program, etc. Um, whereas programs that are cash-based, like like the welfare program, have actually um, declined. And what ends up happening is that the the poverty measure isn't a great metric for measuring the impact of government programs because it's not, because it's not actually
0: capturing into yeah. it. And the individuals that are in poverty, mm-hmm. should we be thinking about the same individuals kind of stuck here? Is there a lot of flux that happening that there are some people that are doing very well and then experience a shock and go into poverty? What's the kind of composition and how much yeah. does it change over time?
1: There, There is a lot of fluctuation in and out of poverty, particularly for people that are whose income is at or around the the poverty line. Um, you know, a nuance of poverty measurement is that uh, that. Young individuals tend to be poor because they 're not earning a lot, and then as you grow in, in skills and your income increases then then um, you you tend to be less likely to be poor. Um, you know a college student living off campus that 's not making any money is, is measured as poor in the official measure um, so might, there are ways that it might not actually reflect that um, but you know in, there are important uh, lessons from or takeaways from from the when you dissect the official poverty, one of them is that uh, single parent families, predominantly single mother families, um, are very overrepresented amongst the poor, and they tend though they tend to be particularly when it's um, low educated single mothers, um they tend to be poor and persistently poor, so they their their um, earnings are low, um, and the resources they get from support programs are not sufficient to lift them out of poverty.
0: right. And I guess another thing that kind of motivates that question for me is that. If you're someone who hasn't experienced poverty before,
1: mm-hmm.
0: they kind of trying to build the empathy from that from that perspective, or even having awareness of those situations where people who don't have a history of poverty mm-hmm. something suddenly happens and they find themselves into that situation, mm-hmm. just kind of um, has this humanizing element of realizing that anybody could find themselves in these positions potentially. Yes. Um, well, so you started to allude to the tremendous amount of money that is spent on anti-poverty programs: eight hundred billion from the federal government, uh, two hundred billion, I think you meant, from oh, from yeah, nonprofits yeah. and places like that. Can you put it in perspective? I mean, is this that's a lot of money? Is this a lot compared to what other countries tend to spend, or what we have spent over time? Do you kind of have any sense of? Those comparisons?
1: It, it is a lot, you know, in, in absolute values, it's, it's a tremendous amount of money. It's uh, as a fraction of GDP, um, it's actually um, small compared to some of the European countries that invest a lot more um, in the social safety net. Um, but but large compared to developing countries that that, that tend to to don't have the resources to invest in these kinds of programs. Right.
0: And to give a feel of what it's being spent on, could you maybe give a few concrete examples of the types of programs or or issues that it's being expended?
1: Yeah, so some of the most expensive programs in the social safety net are are programs like Medicaid that provide um, um, health insurance uh, to low-income individuals and families. And even um, Medicaid... Um, is not the same across participants so um, the vast majority of Medicaid dollars are allocated towards the elderly and long-term care blind and disabled uh, so these are very expensive cases of uh, individuals who insure um, whereas the typical Medicaid recipient is is much less expensive so we so a lot of the resources are allocated towards um, high high um, user um, cases and um, so the government the even though Medicaid, there are millions of, of recipients of Medicaid, the resources are disproportionately in, in amongst the, those that have a high need. Um, <clears throat> there are, um, in, in terms of other programs, you know, the, the programs tend to be targeted. So programs like the Earned Income Tax Credit really target um, families and individuals that are in the labor market, right? So it doesn't provide any resources for an individual. Who's, who, who's not in the labor market. And programs like food stamps are uh, really designed to, to address um, individuals who um, have very low income and other social safety net programs are not um, providing sufficient resources to, to put food on the table.
0: Right. And as I, I want to pivot to asking about what we know about how well these programs mm-hmm. work, but as, as part of pivoting to that, what are the kind of working theories on the causes of poverty?
1: Well, you know, one of the things is that, that uh, every case is different, right? And so, so uh, deeper dives into what causes poverty quickly reveals that they're, um, they're nuanced and they uh, tend to be very individualized, uh, family-specific. Um, but there are some things that, that we know are very strongly correlated uh, with, with poverty. Um, one of them is um, education. Uh, so if getting a high school degree... Um, and preferably a, a college degree is um, is a very strong predictor of whether or not you're in poverty. Um, w- another is um, having a child before you get married. So that's a, that's very strongly uh, correlated with whether or not whether or not you're in poverty. Um, but you, but you know you got to be careful about what 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 this means about policy interventions, right? Because um, it's not necessarily the case that. Um, that if you if they didn't have that child, that that person would have been poor. Just it just so happens that, that people who are poor um, are just those that have children before marriage tend to be disproportionately represented. If you um, fit, finish your high school degree um, and don't have a child until you get married, the uh, the chances of you being poor is really quite low. To give you a sense of kind of yeah, right. the the avenues by which people will become poor. The other group that I that I haven't talked about are those that Are poor because of, uh, say, a financial or health shock, right? So they're people who, um, whose jobs get displaced, and so now their skills don't uh, pay a return in the labor market. Um, So when you know a lot of midwestern cities where the, they're dominated by manufacturing and the steel industry, when those jobs were exported, their skill set didn't pay a return in the labor market, and as a result, they end up they ended up being being poverty, and that's um, that presents other challenges about how do we design policies to um, retool individuals so that they can have the skills that would get them out of poverty. Right. Well,
0: so let's now talk about the anti-poverty programs themselves. Mm-hmm. How are we doing? What do we know about what works and what doesn't work? And maybe I invite kind of a holistic assessment, but then maybe we can dive into a few examples as well.
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, when you look about the trillion dollars we just talked about, $200 billion in the nonprofit sector, $800 a billion, um in government programs, um, when you look at what return we're getting for that investment, I think the most honest answer is that we don't know. Um, and to be clear, that doesn't mean that they don't work, um, but it also doesn't mean that they, they clearly work. And the answer is that we just don't have the kind of evidence we would want um, to give us the uh, security that we're allocating our resources in the best manner possible um, there are it's hard to really kind of estimate this well how much of, of this investment is, is in programs that are really backed by hard evidence um, but the best es- estimates I've seen out there is about one percent of the federal government programs uh, are invested in programs that are backed by hard evidence and um, we can do better than that and that's that's I think a, a real challenge for Policymakers and providers is how do we um, get more information about about uh, how we should steer scarce resources to yeah. improve outcomes?
0: Right, and that one percent figure is that around in a poverty program specifically, or just policies in general? It's, it's really?
1: G- general policies. If you think about, um, kind of, I mean, it's breathtaking. Y- yeah, it's yeah, general policies, and we don't we don't have um, you know it's specific for 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 programs, but I can tell you if you look at um, nonprofit, the nonprofit sector alone. Um, fewer than two percent of them have run a randomized controlled trial evaluation, which is considered the gold standard type of evaluation. Um, and so the key takeaway point here is that there there isn't this pervasive culture of evidence that's driving decision making for policymakers and for providers. And um, there's a long ways to go uh, before we feel like our decisions are really backed by hard evidence.
0: Right. Well, so that I mean that does leave a one percent where mm-hmm. we do know some things mm-hmm. about it. A one of the projects that you worked on was with the Homelessness Prevention Call Center. Mm. Could you kind of walk us through maybe the, the context of what that program attempts to do and how it operates? And then I want to dive into the study that you ran, how you did it, and what you learned.
1: Yeah, so no, this is a good example of um, not not having evidence, and, but, but a lot of resources being allocated towards it. So um, all across the country there are what we call homelessness prevention call centers. And what they do is they provide emergency financial assistance to individuals who are on the brink of homelessness. And the design of the program, the intent of the program, was to provide this one-time assistance to prevent people from becoming homeless. Because once people become homeless, we know that there are all these other... Um, adverse outcomes that happen that are correlated with, with, with being homeless. So, the homeless individuals um, are more likely to be arrested, they're more likely to, to be admitted to the emergency department. Um, this has really uh, bad implications for children. Um, housing instability is, is strongly associated with negative outcomes economic performance for children. Um, so the idea, the policy idea, is can we prevent homelessness from happening in the first place in order to prevent the di- downward spiral that occurs once one becomes homeless? And so that's what these call centers do, and, and these, these call centers are in every major city. Uh, they're in every state across the country. About 90% of the U.S. population is in an area that, that, that has access to these this kind of emergency assistance. Um, they handle 15 million calls a year. And um, despite this broad, pervasive policy, um, we have very little evidence on whether or not when you give somebody emergency financial assistance, does it actually prevent them from becoming homeless. Right. Um, and that's
0: will, what be, if, I'm, if I'm, let's say, I'm someone who's calling in... Mm-hmm. What's the sort of thing I would, um, some examples of things that I might be asking for help on, and what are the kind of types of help, or if it's finances, the amounts that we're talking about? Good,
1: there. yeah. So, so um, the typical example of somebody who would be eligible for assistance would be um, they call the hotline, and they say, Look, um, I have a fi- 15 day eviction notice from my landlord. I lost my job, I can't pay the rent. I have a job offer, um, but I'm not starting for six weeks. Um, I'm about to get evicted from my apartment and myself and my wife and kids are going to live on the street for six weeks. Is there anything you can do to help? Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of case that these these call centers are designed to help, right? It's it's temporary assistance for a one-time shock where the family doesn't have other resources they can turn to. um, And the idea is let's not let them go on the streets temporarily because that's going to lead to other bad outcomes. Let's try to keep them stably housed. Right. So they might give a,
0: a quantity of cash that would help them cover the rent right so, so in those them, like, circumstances fix the car, whatever it is
1: right, right. It, it, in this, it, um, the most common cases is, is help with, um, with paying the rent a security deposit or paying the utilities. Mm-hmm. Um, there are other kinds of emergency assistance for cars and things but those tend to be on, on a smaller scale
0: right Well so did how did you, how did you s- learn how the program was working? Because are right. the
1: methods that you use? Mm-hmm. So, um, we ended up partnering with um, the city of Chicago, in particular the Homelessness Prevention Call Center, which is the call center that handles all of these issues for the city. So, if you're about to get evicted from your apartment in Chicago, you call 311. And 311, when you call, it's the information hotline for the city. But if you say you're about to get evicted, they'll route you to the Homelessness Prevention Call Center. And the Homelessness Prevention Call Center screens you for eligibility, kind of verifies that that this is the situation you're in, you're about to get evicted. And then it refers you to an agency that has funds. And we wanted to determine whether or not when you give somebody assistance, does that actually help? Does that actually prevent them from becoming homeless? And we were able to do that in a very rigorous way because of the unique way that the call center processes calls. So what they do is everybody that calls and is eligible, they collect information on them first before they tell the caller whether or not financial assistance is available. And you know, the unfortunate situation is that even for those that are eligible, So that family, you're about to get evicted from your apartment and you need that one-time assistance, you're eligible. Sometimes the answer is, I'm sorry, we don't have any financial assistance for you. Um, That's just the state of the funding uh, nature of the call center um, and the supporting agencies in in Illinois. And um, as a consequence of that, though, we have some people who call and funding is available, and some people who are eligible and call, but funding is not available and this is what we call a natural experiment. So we have an opportunity to take advantage of this, this unfortunate situation but turn it into something really important about learning what is the impact of this program. So what we do simply is just compare the outcomes for those who are lucky enough to call when funding is available to the outcomes for those who are unlucky and call when funding's not available. And when I say outcomes, what we do is we look six months later and we, say, we see are you, what is the probability or how, how often do people show up in a homeless shelter if they called when, uh, the, when funding was available and then what fraction of people who call when funding is not available show up in a shelter and it turns out that you're 76% less likely to show up in a homeless shelter if you called on a day when funding was available which is you know, the best evidence mm-hmm. out there right now that giving this one-time emergency financial assistance actually does have an impact on the likelihood of becoming homeless.
0: Right, and that's 76% relative reduction, if I have the numbers right yes. from when we talked about it. It's yeah. going from 2% or about, yes, two about a a half. fifty people to less than about half, about half a About half, half, half a percent, that's right. And that's, how, how does that play out in terms of uh, in terms of dollars? Because I mean, the ability to save someone from needing to use a homeless shelter and the other kind of government resources mm-hmm. that they were drawing, I assume as part of the calculus here, for a government any, thinking about, you know, I've got only so many dollars I can spend. How do I do it efficiently? What's the kind of return on mm-hmm. investments that we see in a space like this?
1: Yeah, no, and that's really important, right, because one of the biggest challenges with these kinds of prevention efforts, not just homelessness prevention, but pre- preventing other bad outcomes through interventions, is it's hard to know who are the people that are in those dire circumstances who don't have other resources that they could use at their disposal to, to uh, prevent them from becoming homeless or having having a negative outcome. Um, the, in other words, the targeting is imperfect. And as a result of it, th- that the program is somewhat expensive. So w- when we do the calculations, how much money does it take to prevent one spell of homelessness? It's on the order of $10,000. And why is it so expensive? It's not because they're giving the individual $10,000. What's happening is they have to give um, assistance, one-time assistance, to about 10 people on average before they're going to get one of them to not Mm -hmm. become homeless, right? To prevent one spell of homelessness. The average uh, assistance is about $1,000. And so because it's not perfectly targeted, um, the program ends up up to be what what you might call somewhat expensive, but really to know whether or not it's expensive, you need to compare it to what we're gaining, right? right. Um, so there's a number of different benefits we get out of preventing a spell of homelessness, and so we want to kind of put a dollar value on those, and that's, that's in the study, that's what we do. Um, if you add up um, the cost of providing shelter assistance for people who become homeless, and then all the other government programs that um, these people will depend on because they become homeless, and then on top of that, the personal benefits that you get from not being homeless in the the sense that for example um, mortality rates are much higher for people who are homeless than people who are not when you put a dollar value on all these things it ends up far exceeding the ten thousand dollar cost that um, the the cost savings is in the order of twenty thousand dollars so from that perspective um, this kind of emergency financial assistance intervention um, is cost effective because even though it's not perfectly targeted um, it's moving the needle enough uh, to justify the investment,
0: right? And I think it's a it's a really important point about how these types of studies give you not only a kind of binary sense of you know, mm-hmm. does it work or not. And I think most people would have the intuition that giving cash assistance, it's at least not going to hurt. You know, like yes. of course it's going to to work in some yes. sense. Yeah. But it's really important to unpack how much does it work, how yeah. much you get in out of it relative to other ways you might be spending that. And this is the methods you're describing a lot, you to get those types of estimates.
1: Right, that's right. Because we know, you know, that, that people, you know, somebody gave me $1,000, I'm going to benefit from that, right? But but it's brain. not just that, that you're going to benefit from it. It's, it's is it... Just is it moving the needle enough to justify the cost? And if not, you know, are there better ways to use that, right? Because ultimately, what we want to do is to, to reduce homelessness, right? And if you can't do it in the most cost-effective way through homelessness prevention, what are the other ways, right? And that's that's ultimately what we like. And
0: your, and your method is a very good example of trying to take advantage of mm-hmm. random, it's kind of random things that are happening in the world to try to do something that gives you a measurement similar to what a. Actual controlled randomized trial would do. Mm-hmm. In this instance, do you, have a, do you have a sense of, like, how did you actually determine that it was actually random? Or, like, how random did it seem? Because you could imagine that maybe they, they run out of money at the end of the month, but not the front. Yeah.
1: Yes. No, it's a really good question. They, um, what we were worried about was that people call and they're turned down, and the most persistent ones were, would call back. And get and get funding later. Um, the call center was structured interestingly enough to, to not enable that behavior because the the actual the intake specialist who processes the calls is, is instructed in their script when somebody asks, "Well, when will funding be available?" Uh, they they say kind of exactly what what from a researcher's perspective you'd want, which is. It's hard to know when funding is going to become available. It arrives unpredictably, so you, know, you call that again. Um, but, but ultimately, so they were telling us that this funding was available in, in random ways, but ultimately we can test that. So what you can do, think of it think of if, if instead of um, relying on this natural experiment, if we were actually to do an experiment, what we would do is flip a coin, right? And if you flipped a coin, heads you get funding, tails you don't. We know that the two groups would look exactly the same at baseline, and we could track them over time. Um, So we can test whether or not what happened in practice mimics what you would do in terms of the experiment by looking at the observable characteristics of people who called when funding was available as compared to people who called when funding was not available. So when you look at those observable characteristics, their their income, family size, age, race, um, their income sources across a number of different characteristics, they looked exactly the same. So it was exactly what you'd expect if, if, if you were going to design it now.
0: Right, and it's a, I mean, it's an an example that can inspire thinking about where we might find s- opportunities to do similar learnings. Many resources are scarce mm-hmm. in government, and so you know, how are those scarce resources being distributed? Could it be in a lottery type fashion that can sort of set up the ability to mm-hmm. learn like this? I mean, the other part of this study is that you were relying on a lot of data that was already there, so it yes. wasn't even expensive in the sense of having to go do entirely new information collections.
1: Yeah, so the a key component to doing the kind of evaluations that, that we're doing is that you need a group that is not receiving services that you we call comparison group or control group that you compare the outcomes for that group compared to those that are receiving services and, um, and you need that, those groups to be to be very similar right and um, it turns out that that's there, there are tremendous opportunities to do that kind of analysis out there that we're not taking advantage of. Um, for just the unfortunate fact that um, providers, cities, counties, nonprofits don't have the resources to serve everybody they'd like to serve. And um, one of the providers, I like the way they put it, they, they, although that's a very unfortunate situation, they want to turn that no into an opportunity. In other words, we're, we're, we can't serve everybody, but at least we can use that opportunity to track outcomes to measure the impact of our programs. Right. What happened at the end of the study in
0: terms of was the policy changed or what's happened?
1: So uh, so it's an interesting political climate in Illinois where they, the the um, kind of the movement, the trend, is to cut back on a lot of social programs. And so we're actually viewing it as a success to date that, that there haven't been the kinds of cutbacks in the call center that mm-hmm. we've, we've seen in other programs. And the discussion of our results did come up in and uh, uh, political discussions about this in Springfield at the capital in Illinois when they were talking about how to allocate the resources. And we actually presented these results in front of the folks of the city of Chicago that are in charge mm-hmm. of health and human services that were making these decisions. Um, and that did play an important role in terms of, you know, they have limited resources, which programs do they need to cut back and which ones they don't. And right. The call centers um, continues to be funded.
0: Well, so why do you think you didn't get more traction on that? That return on investment that we talked through—that mm-hmm. yes, it's relatively expensive, ten thousand dollars—but there's this cost savings on the other part of government, yeah. twenty thousand dollars. It seems like if you're in the government, kind of crunching the numbers on this, it's a—it would be a no-brainer decision. What's what's causing yeah. the delay? So,
1: there? There, a couple of, of things. One, some some just changing policy can be can be complicated. And this, you know, the study came out last year, and we hope that. That um, over time we're going to see see more substantive policy change. Um, the other is kind of digging deeper into that cost-benefit analysis. Um, there are key costs that fall on society, um, like and you know, maybe ultimately the taxpayer, like the um, cost of providing the shelter for these individuals and, and families, and the cost of providing the social insurance programs that they that that you know these are more expensive cases now that they are that they're homeless and depend on these programs. Um, that and if you just incorporate those costs, um, it's a much easier sell to politicians. They say, "Look, my actual balance sheet might improve if I can reduce these costs and increase that." Um, the the a large component of our benefit in the cost benefit analysis is the benefit to the individual that occurs because they. Uh, have improved outcomes. I mean, there, there's, and we we can put a dollar value on things like, you know, um, your life expend- expectancy has been extended because of this program, um, and those values tend to be tend to be quite high. And I think that that's harder for um, po- policymakers to to really convince the you know the broader public to make decisions based on just those benefits just because they don't fall you know fall mm-hmm. on the actual budget of the city right. um and so so although i think that over time this will garner more and more support for programs like this it's it's uh, not necessarily as easy a sell as if it if it literally were gonna improve the the bottom line of the budgets of the city
0: right and see like there could be i mean where my mind goes in hearing that is thinking about not only the return investment the type of estimates you might do in a more holistic sense, but you can imagine thinking very carefully about the individuals who have to make decisions over particular program areas mm. and figuring out exactly what is on their ledger specifically Yes, and trying to run the return on analysis in terms mm-hmm. of the programs and budgets they personally oversee. That Maybe that's a strategy to make it more compelling or to fit better. Have you had experience with this?
1: Well, one thing I will say is that there's some low-hanging fruit out there For programs that are particularly expensive for cities and counties and states, so that if you could move the needle a little bit for programs like that, then you could generate real substantive cost savings, and then I think it would resonate with policymakers. One example is um, the prison system. right? So the prison systems tend to be, for local communities, tend to be really expensive. Recidivism rates um, are often quite high, in, in particularly in urban areas. And um, if you have a program that can reduce recidivism, the city and county can see the return on investment right away. They say, oh, look, this means that our prison population is going to decline. This is going to save me resources, so I'm willing to take part of my budget for the prison system and move it over to this intervention to prevent that. Um, now, I don't think we should only be targeting programs where there's, kind of, where there's this clear, immediate return, but I do think that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit there where, where um, generating some evidence in those areas could really go a long ways in terms of shaping local policy.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and I, I agree, I wasn't suggesting it was, but, but for thinking just pragmatically around mm-hmm. how and trying to move the political levers, mm-hmm. it's kind of an additional way to maybe do that.
1: Yes, yeah, absolutely. Um
0: well, I'd like to maybe talk about one more one more example before mm-hmm. we round out our time, which is the Stay the Course mm-hmm. program that you've studied. Kind of similar here. Could you tell us a little bit about what what the problem is, how the program is tailored to solve it, and then I'll ask about what we know
1: about its effectiveness. Sure. So um it, it's been well documented that there's a significant return on investment by going to community college. Uh, the average earnings of those with an associate's degree, community college degree, is much higher than those who just graduate high school or go to community college and drop out. Um, and community college graduates have much stabler employment are much more likely to be employed. Um, we've had a fair amount of success at encouraging, as a result of that, encouraging more Uh, particularly low-income individuals to go to community college. Um, But this has introduced kind of a different crisis, which is that um, even though we're seeing more people go to college, we're not seeing necessarily more people graduating from community college. Um, If you look nationally, even after six years after these students start community college, um, only about 40% of, the, percent of them are, are completing the degree. So we have 60% are either still, six years later, are still in school or uh, have dropped out of school. Um, it's what academics are calling a completion crisis. And um, so there's a lot of interest and research now in thinking about an experimentation, and what can we do to address the completion crisis? Because if you could address that, um, that investment um, has the potential to increase earnings, increase job stability, move people permanently out of poverty. And what, what, um, in order to address that, it's important to understand why do people drop out of community college in the first place. And it turns out that although academic preparation and um, you know, the ability to pay for tuition are important, perhaps the most important reason, particularly for low-income individuals and um, first-generation college goers, Um, for why they drop out is what you might say is life gets in the way. Other things outside of the academic setting happen that set them off course and they end up dropping out. So their car breaks down, uh, they get sick or a child gets sick or a parent gets sick. They They lose their job Um, they have to drop out in order to address that immediate issue and as a result of that, they never get back on track. And this ends up playing a really important role in terms of not being successful in in completing college. And recognizing that, um, a provider in Fort Worth, Texas, Catholic Charities Fort Worth, has uh, designed a program to address just those issues, to help um, these individuals succeed in school. And the program's called Stay the Course. And what it does is it's, it's um, part of um, a kind of intervention that we're seeing more and more often across the country, recognizing the complexity that, um, that is poverty, that, these, that there's all sorts of issues that arise and that they're very individual specific. Um, this program, Stay the Course, Um, matches a student with a navigator and this navigator um, does a detailed assessment at the beginning with the student says what are your goals, Um, what are the potential obstacles preventing you from succeeding in school Um, and how do we um, anticipate these obstacles so that we can address them they come up with an individualized service plan for addressing this and then they coach and mentor the student through the community college process um, and when incidents arise, they help them navigate that sometimes by providing providing one-time assistance.
0: Who, who are the individuals? Are they working for the community college, nonprofit, government?
1: So sort of background. The the navigators. So <laughs> the navigators are um, case managers that work for the nonprofit. In this case, Catholic Charities Fort Worth. But the model is that you know in every city, you have community college, you have service providers um, who who have these um, case managers who are trained to deal with these issues. Um, why can't they work together to help address the issues that are leading to these students dropping out? Um, and um, so just as an example, the, um, there was a story of, a, of a, a student, a woman who dropped out of class because she couldn't see the blackboard. And it uh, turns out her eyeglass prescription was out of, out of date and um, she, she dropped all of her classes. And um, the navigator helped her address the immediate issue Got her got her new glasses so she could see the board, and also helped her navigate the process of re-enrolling her in classes so she could stay on track to graduate. And things like that are not the kinds of issues that a community college guidance counselor is going to help you address. But it turns out that those kinds of issues can be real substantive in terms of getting students off track, particularly low-income students, first-generation students.
0: Right. And so, how did it work, and how do we know?
1: Yeah. So this is, in, you know, is a more expensive intervention than say. Um, you know, the typical guidance counselor uh, type services that would be available at a community college. And so it's really important to know, does it improve outcomes and does it improve it enough to justify the, the the larger investment? And so what we did is ran a randomized controlled trial evaluation. There were far more students at the community college in Fort Worth, Texas that were interested in the program than the provider could serve through state of the course. So what they did was they took all the individuals that were uh, eligible for the program and they randomly selected a subset of them to receive the state of the course services. Um, and then there was a group that did not receive it, the comparison group. And then through data from the community college uh, and the national, actually national data on community college systems, we were able to observe, you know, are these students still enrolled in school um, either at the initial community college or, or elsewhere? Have they completed their degree? So we could measure, um, you know, are you more likely to stay in school or have completed college if you're part of the state of the course than if you were part of the control group? Right. And so what were the estimates here? Yeah. And so what we found, the answer is you're much more likely to both persist in school and to complete a degree. Um, For the overall sample, you're twice as likely to be, uh, to remain uh, in school Uh, if you're, participate and stay the course as compared to the relevant control group, um, and degree completion was on order of four times larger, and the effect was particularly noticeable for females. Um, and so what, what that evidence showed is that this kind of individualized comprehensive intervention really did move the needle in a way that other kinds of interventions have not been successful in doing. Right. And have you had a chance to sort of do a similar mapping out of the, the cost
0: the benefit ratio with this project like the prior one?
1: We have, and so here's the way, um, so we have our, our first calculations of this um, that, that we think we'll be able to improve on, let me, let me tell you why. So um, the, the ultimate return on this investment is going to come through higher earnings. Right? I mentioned in the beginning that a community college investment is a good is a good return. We have estimates from national data that your earnings are about 25% higher if you go to a community college and get the degree as compared to go to a community college and drop out. Um, so if we use those kinds of estimates, um, what we find is that it would take about three years before a community college student who participates in the state of the course um, earnings uh, additional earnings they would get would offset the cost of the program, um, which is a relatively short time frame, right? Because then they have the rest, the rest of the the increase in earnings over their lifetime is a net benefit of the program. Um, the reason why I say that those are those are early estimates is what we would ultimately like to do is not use the national estimates, but measure the earnings of the students that were participating in the study. So the next step of the study is to just track the earnings for the treatment group and for the control group and see is it in fact the case that the earnings um, are higher for the treatment group and at what point are the earnings, um, have the accumulated additional earnings um, is, is it large enough to justify or to completely offset the cost of the intervention?
0: Right and so to channel the economist, one <laughs> thing one might say here is one way you could save money is just hand over a check to the woman who needs glasses and uh-huh. don't do all the navigator business what do we know about that?
1: Right. And so it turns out we, we tested this. So in the program, I mentioned that the Stay the Course program, also part of it, they also provide some financial assistance to help them when shocks arise. Um, part of the experiment, what we did was say, well, what would happen if we just gave them money when shocks arise, but didn't give them any kind of case management assistance? And that was a different treatment group, essentially. And so we tracked outcomes for a group that had access to these financial emergency financial assistance. And uh, what we saw when you look six semesters later at the outcomes for that group, they were no different than the control group. And suggesting that there really wasn't a clear benefit of providing one-time emergency assistance, or um, even they could access it up to $1,500 over the course of the program, um, there wasn't a clear benefit of that in terms of persistence in school and graduation rates. But if you coupled that kind of assistance with the case management, what we found was this noticeable improvement.
0: Interesting. So how does that make you, how do you square that with the homelessness call center where it was a cash transfer where you were getting a big benefit? What's the difference yeah. in the context here? How do you, in one case yeah. cash works, the other one you need something additional?
1: Yeah, so no, that, that's a good question. We, we, um, I think the real challenge with providing emergency financial assistance is, is targeting, the issue of targeting. And so in the case of homelessness prevention, um, they have done a, a reasonably good job at targeting the assistance to the people who are really in those dire circumstances. And, you know, it, the 15-day eviction notice, right. um, documented job loss, um, and documented future income streams so that they know that the, that this isn't something they're kicking the can down the road. In the case of community college, um, the situations that the students kind of presented to the need for emergency financial assistance, um, it was less clear, right? So, oh, um, I, you know, my car broke down um, and I, you know, I can't pay for it, can you help me? I can't pay rent this month, can you, can you help me? And there was some perception from the provider that what was happening is that students were um, perhaps allocating some resources towards other things and that, that created the need um, that they could then use the financial assistance for. And in that case, you wouldn't expect it to, to necessarily. So So I think it's really kind of an issue of implementation, right? So I think that that if you could truly target the individuals who, without that assistance, would drop out of school, then it would be effective. It's just hard to target it. Right. Well,
0: so last question then. What's what's on the horizon? Um, I'm wondering what you think are kind of the biggest issues that need to be tackled next, and I'm also curious what you're going to be working on next and how we'd stay involved to learn what you're learning about.
1: Yeah, so uh, a couple of things. The first kind of builds off of the homelessness prevention example. Um, and I think one of the key takeaways we've learned from that is that cities and counties in particular and, and local nonprofits are sitting on data that has tremendous power to tell us the impact of programs. Um, but they don't they often many times they don't realize it. And so part of what we're doing at the Wilson Sheehan Lab for Economic Opportunities um, is to work with cities and counties and providers to help them see that um, there are ways to measure the impact of their programs that, um, that they could do with the data that they already have, or maybe with some small um, change to the enrollment process uh, for the programs that they're implementing. And so a lot of what we're doing is trying to help local providers um, realize that there are opportun- real opportunities here to do a better job of measuring the impact of their programs. Um, the other uh, kind of real uh, growth area for us on the horizon is um, these programs that Stay the Course is a good example of, what we call comprehensive case management programs. There's been a real kind of shift in dialogue, particularly amongst amongst nonprofits, about um, how do we move towards not just addressing the symptoms. Here and there, but rather addressing the fundamental causes, so that we can have a lasting, permanent impact on the clients that we serve. I mean, we've seen time and time again nonprofits who are rewriting their strategic plans and their mission to be all about um, you know they'll say things like giving a hand up as, as opposed to a handout, and um, and a lot of that conversation is revolving around these comprehensive case management programs. Stay the course is one example. So we have. Um, many impact evaluations underway right now to test these kinds of programs in all different kinds of settings. So it's pe- individuals leaving prison, uh, low-income elderly leaving the hospital, um, We have a program for families that um, are down on the luck and seeking emergency financial assistance. Can you in these situations provide comprehensive case management services? to not just address the immediate symptom, but rather have a sustained permanent impact um, that moves them permanently out of poverty. And the real promise there is that if these programs are successful, getting back to kind of that long-term payout, um, that reduces their dependence on government programs, um, which is going to be you know, an added reason why policymakers will find, it, find, find this attractive if, if they become less dependent um, on government programs uh, and more self-sufficient. You, it's easier to justify reallocation of, of government dollars.
0: That's great. Well, Professor Sullivan, I really appreciate your time today and uh, appreciate the research that you're doing and look forward to staying engaged to the lab. Uh, for everyone who joined today, thank you. If you haven't already, do go to the lab.dc.gov and sign up where we have wonderful speakers like Jim coming into the lunch at DC and other things. But thank you again. Thanks, David. appreciate it.